on you, you censorious bug. Levant here. I'm standing in London, England. Behind me, Westminster Abbey, uh, a church where kings and queens have been crowned, royal weddings and funerals. It's the heart of England, this ancient place with a history going back centuries, millennia even. Uh, it's a Christian history. It's a history of the West. It's the history of North America, which emanated from the British Empire. It's the history of our language. It's the history of Winston Churchill our notions of freedom of speech and the rule of law, the Magna Carta dating back to 1215. But what I've learned over the last few days is that the England of the past, the England that informs our present, I, I think it's in decline. There's this uh, social media meme going on. It's really funny. Girls or, or women ask each other, ask your boyfriend how often he thinks of the Roman Empire. How many times a week does he think of the Roman Empire? Or just how many times in general do you think about the Roman Empire? Probably not a lot. Why? Not a lot? When was the last time you thought about it? Maybe a week or two ago. <laughs> and they're stunned when their boyfriends say things like every week or every day. And it's sort of funny, and I'm not sure how true it is, but when you think about it, the Roman Empire and the British Empire well, we think about them all the time, even if we don't know we do, because everything we do and say and think and how we organize ourselves and interact with each other came from the British Empire. And, and that, in some ways, came from the Roman Empire before it. Londinium is where I'm standing. But empires rise and fall. And I, I think that the British Empire, while, of course, it has been decolonized and has been in decline in some ways for a century, what I saw this weekend showed that England itself is being colonized. And I'm not using colonized as a byword for just immigration. There, there have always been immigrants to England. If you, uh, if you think about the empire itself, it was a multicultural, multiracial, global enterprise. One of my favorite poets, Rudyard Kipling, was born in India. He wrote The Jungle Book. If you can imagine what the port of London was like and other ports, um, 400 years ago when Shakespeare was writing. I mean, they had the adventures to America and to India. I'm not talking about immigration. I'm talking about colonization because what I saw on the streets of London yesterday were 100,000 people marching under a foreign flag. I spent hours on the street and then I looked at social media for hours later. The only British flag, the only Union Jack I saw all day were held by some Nigerian Christian tourists who were in a group. Other than that, I didn't see a single British flag. I saw hundreds of Palestinian flags. I saw some darker flags, which I don't quite know. They looked like they may be an Islamic State flag or something. Uh, I, I don't know definitively. Uh, but even without the flags, what I saw is a loyalty to a, a religion and a political movement that was completely un-British, that had nothing to do with the rule of law or King Charles, um, that was calling for, as Hamas does, Sharia law, that preaches violence, that's what the Hamas Charter does. It made me profoundly sad that although the British Empire has, I suppose, been in decline for a century, Britain itself was still Britain. And I think what scares me about this colonization 
it's not that these people are, are in the main of a different religion or a different race. I should say about a quarter of the marchers were hardcore left-wing indigenous Brits, uh, white post-Christian Brits. But three-quarters of them were people who came here and had a cultural value that made them celebrate the barbarity of the Hamas attacks. And I asked a number of protesters if they would just simply describe Hamas as a terrorist group or not. I spoke to one British fellow, I'm not sure if he did, but the Muslim folks I spoke to just refused to answer that question. They are trying to take the words of the Holocaust and flip them around on the Jews. The Jews are committing a Holocaust. The Jews are the new Nazis. The Jews are committing a genocide, undermining the, uh, the truth about the history of the Jews and, and weaponizing the anti-Semitism in London. I would be terrified if I was a British Jew. Uh, I think that Britain's on the same path as France, where synagogues have to be guarded by soldiers around the clock with uh, submachine guns, and um, where there are violent attacks on Jews on the street all the time. We're starting to see a little bit of that in the UK and even in Canada. And uh, I don't know, I'm glad I guess I was born when I was that I could have gotten to know London, even if it's in global decline. I'm sure Rome in its final years was still a wonderful place. The best restaurants, the best museums. I mean, imagine all the antiquities that were brought from the Roman Empire to Rome. You can still see some of them now. But I, I fear that uh, the UK, because of its essential politeness, isn't calling out some atrocious things on the street. When I saw a picture of tens of thousands of people on the Westminster Bridge, and there were other bridges, um, all of them flying a, a foreign flag, all of them calling for violence against Israel, smash the terror state was what the socialist workers put on their pamphlets. I couldn't help but think of what it would have been like in 1930s here. There were some Nazi sympathizers in London during the 30s. They were very careful to say they were not for violence and they claimed they were not anti-Semitic. They were very careful about it. They just admired Hitler. He was getting things back on track for Germany and wasn't he charismatic and the economic was booming, the economy was booming under him. But even in the 1930s, the pro-Nazi Brits, and there were a few, uh, were extremely careful to avoid or even to condemn uh, some of the excesses that were visible at the time of Hitler. Not so here. We spoke to a few um, media savvy Muslim protesters who tried to dance around these questions. I think they were putting on a liberal face. I think most of the protesters were simply regurgitating the propaganda lines put to them or truly would say, yes, from the river to the sea, drive every Jew out. That is the Hamas charter. That's what the chant from the river to the sea means. And I remember when I was in uh, elementary school, we learned about something called the golden age of Jews in Spain. And it ended in 1492 with the Inquisition and the expulsion of uh, Jews. And But there was this time, a period of decades, even centuries, where a Jew in Spain had many rights and had great freedom. And I think that was the way in Germany until the 30s. It was great to be a Jew in Berlin. Jews were very successful. Half the doctors uh, in, in Berlin were Jewish. Imagine how the Nuremberg laws affected that city. And um, I feel like I was born in the golden age for Jews in America, in Canada. I mean, what a lucky and easy childhood I had. Never did I 
ever feel in any risk or any threat. And I genuinely felt that there was nothing in the country I couldn't do, no goal I couldn't aspire to. And while the mass rally of 100,000 neo-Nazis speaking Arabic instead of German, 100,000 neo-Nazis flying the new swastika, and the left is all in favor of it, and the center is afraid of it, and all the polite Brits don't want to make a fuss. And it reminds me of Kipling's poem. And remember, Kipling was born in India, and he loved the Indian people. The stranger within my gate, he may be true or kind, but he does not talk my talk. I cannot feel his mind. I see the face and the eyes and the mouth, but not the soul behind. And I'll read a little bit more, but that reminds me of that young woman that David Menzies found in Mississauga. She looks lovely, actually. She, she looks friendly. She's beautiful. She's young. And, and by the way, uh, I don't know if she still works there. She works at a normal store. Like, she's not a professional activist. Um, and I'm sure she has colleagues of different races and religions. But when things hit the fan... She said anything Hamas did is justified. Here, here's a little clip reminding you of that. Including what happened last week? Every single thing they have done is justified. Ma'am, there were children murdered, there were babies beheaded. Babies beheaded, really? Let me read a little more of the poem. The men of my own stock, they may do ill or well, but they tell the lies I am wanted to, and they are used to the lies I tell. And we do not need interpreters when we go to buy or sell. And here's the terrifying line. And this was written 100 years ago, but it's how I felt yesterday watching 100,000 people brave for the murder of the Jews. Now, they didn't say murder the Jews. They said it in code. They said, from the river to the sea. Basically, get every Jew out of Israel. Oh, and by the way, Hamas says get every Jew out of everywhere. Here's the poem, here's the stanza in the poem that terrifies me. The stranger within my gates, he may be evil or good, but I cannot tell what powers control, what reasons sway his mood, nor when the gods of his far off land shall repossess his blood. I'm, I'm not looking or expecting everyone to support Israel, or I'm not looking for Muslims to love Jews or for people to support Benjamin Netanyahu, who's a, who's a divisive figure even within Israel. But I had a feeling deep in my bones that here in well, I'm here in London, but in London, but also in North America and in Canada, we had some basic common ground, some civic nationalism, if you will, where we all sort of agreed murder is bad, rape is bad, torture is bad, kidnapping of civilian hostages is bad. And those things are bad. We had a basic understanding. And so if you and I disagreed about something, whether it was Palestine or Russia or Ukraine or what the GST should be, we would have a commonality. And even if we were mean to each other, there was a basis upon which we had a unity, a basis, a, a kind of social contract that we knew we could understand each other. And what Kipling's writing, and I didn't, I'm not going to read the whole poem, what Kipling is saying is that there are wonderful people of every background there who may be kind and good and noble and tremendous. But maybe every once in a while something happens and it reveals a deep underlying incompatibility. And I fear that what I saw on the streets of London yesterday is not something that can be... There's no antidote of, well, let's just have a, a unit in grade four where, where they'll study the Holocaust. 
I'm sorry, that's not going to change the mind of 100,000 people and probably a million more cheering them on who deeply hate Jews and want the Jewish state eradicated. I, I, this isn't a, ma a matter of haggling over details or compromise. I think it is a deep incompatibility. And I'm not saying that about all Muslims or of all socialists. They were, like I say, about a quarter of the people there were communists and socialists. I'm saying there are some people who we've let into the UK and into Canada and the United States who have not come to be a part of Canada and the United States to integrate and to assimilate, even bringing with them their, their religions. I think they have come, as another man that David Menzies interviewed a few years ago said, let me remind you of an incredible interview that David Menzies did at an Al-Quds Day protest in Toronto. Let the man speak for himself. Take a look at this. So would you like to see Sharia law in Canada replace Canadian law? At some point it will. You know, because we, are, we, are, we have families, we are making babies, you are not. You're, 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 your population is going down the slump, right? right? Yeah. By 2060, Muslims will be the biggest religious group the world over. Right. What are you going to do then? Actually, are you going to oppose Sharia even then? Because we, we owe our allegiance and our loyalty first and foremost to our religion, not to the queen, okay. to be honest. When I went for my uh, so-called oath, I was silent, I didn't say anything. It was your responsibility to make sure you got it out of me. Did you see that? He's, he's a colonizer. He's the imperialist now. He says that when the numbers are there, Sharia law will rule. He said he was silent in his citizenship ceremony when he was supposed to make the oath. He said it was on you to make me say the oath. I have many Muslim friends, including on the board of our company, our staff. I have had Muslim friends since I was in high school. I consider myself very lucky to have met Muslims when, when they were a very small part of the community and I made true friendships with them. I, I agree with some and disagree with others on different politics, but I'm afraid, even if it's only a portion of these uh, migrants, that, in, that they, a terrible thing was awakened when that barbaric attack on Israel happened. Let me clarify and close with this. I'm not asking for the Muslims or the Arabs or the Palestinians of London or even of Canada to share my views on the future state of affairs in the Middle East. I'm not asking for that. I'm not even asking for them to love Jews as Christians love others. But what terrifies me is that so many of them, like that man at the Al-Quds rally or that woman in Mississauga, on the outside, they look friendly and Canadian and they're drinking their Tim Hortons and they're working beside colleagues of every background. But every once in a while, the mask drops and an absolutely terrifying anti-Semitism reveals itself. I'm afraid of it and I don't know what to do. I think the first thing you do is you stop making it worse. I think new immigrants to the West should be asked basic questions about cultural compatibility. Do you believe in pluralism, in nonviolent solutions to problems, in the equality of men and women? Do you believe in the separation of mosque and state and, and the separation of church and state? I think that we've let in too many people who have not been asked to become British or to become Canadian. We don't say integrate or assimilate anymore. We say include. Inclusion. Canada has to do the changing, not the newcomers. This trip, I'm, I'm here because I was invited to attend the ARC conference that Jordan Peterson and others have um, 
convene later this week. It's sort of an antidote to the World Economic Forum. There are wonderful, brilliant people in London, and I hope there always will be. It's one of the world's greatest cities, and there's amazing thinkers and doers here. But there's definitely two Londons. There's the London of Shakespeare and Parliament and, and the history and the Magna Carta, but then there is a new London, and we saw it on the streets yesterday. For Rebel News, I'm Ezra Levant. here for Rebel News. I'm at the ARC conference, which is a giant conference, almost 2,000 people here from all over the Anglosphere, not just the Anglosphere, frankly, there are people here from over 70 countries. Uh, it was imagined as a sort of counterweight to the World Economic Forum or the United Nations, but ARC stands for Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, so it gives you a bit of a flavor. And we're over here in London, England, but wouldn't you know it, I bump into my fellow Canadian, in fact, we're both from Calgary originally, Amanda Actman, and she just told me about some of the stuff she's up to. That's, I think, one of the big pluses of this ARC conference, is it's sort of a networking thing for freedom-oriented people around the world, and I just thought, well, let me grab my friend Amanda for a moment because, boy, she told me some interesting things that she's up to. Amanda, great to see you. Great to see you again, Ezra, at this big reunion of so many people doing great work really worldwide, as you touched on. As you know, one of my most passionate issues is life, respect for life. And this has been coming up throughout this conference, that what is the value, what is the content that makes civilization worthy of defense. And we're hearing about the Judeo-Christian tradition, we're hearing about Western civilization, but ultimately I think it was really touched upon with the preservation of life. And this is something that Canadians are losing touch with, particularly with the radical expansion of euthanasia. At first, when euthanasia was legalized nationwide, we were told this was for those who were terminally ill with grievous and irremediable conditions. And now we're at the point where I think euthanasia deaths in Canada are on par if not exceeding total deaths from COVID. We've seen the fourth annual report come out about euthanasia in Canada. And which, who authored that report? The, so this is a Health Canada report, the government's own data indicating that more than 40,000 Canadians have been euthanized since 2016, since legalization. So that is, that is a COVID level number. Yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing that more and more doctors are euthanizing people, nurses too, that one of the data points that kind of surprised me is it's not only in hospitals, they're very often going to private homes. And I saw on the Government of Canada website uh, that it said, even if you do not have a family doctor, we will send a doctor to you to euthanize you. It is becoming a going saying that the only on-time healthcare is death in Canada. It's the only treatment killing that you can be sure there won't be much of a wait list for and will happen in a timely manner. This is disgusting. It's a shame. And many people here know that Canada is the euthanasia capital of the world. And they're asking me, why do you think Canada is, is so uh, off the charts with this. What, and I'd be curious to ask you, Ezra, what do you think it is about Canada that has made us the euthanasia capital of the world? Well, that's super gross, and you said so many things there that I, that I want to respond to. But to answer your question, I think the number one reason is that there has been no real national debate over it. I think a lot of the things you just said will come as a complete surprise to Canadians. Um, I think sometimes the foreign media has talked more about it than the Canadian media. And I'm, I'm just hornswoggled by what you said there about, like, it is so hard to get a doctor uh, 
in Canada, but they will move heaven and earth to send you to heaven. Uh, and, I, and I saw that now they're going to expand it to people who are depressed. And this is right. You're talking about international media. That has been key for getting this year-long legislative pause because the Liberals felt the pressure, I think, largely due to international attention to pause it for one year. Of course, we ought to make the pause permanent because... Euthanasia, for those for whom a mental illness is the sole underlying condition, this is crazy. People with depression, people with PTSD, people with postpartum, the, the, there's no limit. Once euthanasia is seen as the answer to suffering, there's no limit for who should qualify. And the sinister language of qualification, eligibility, provision, recipient, we are talking about the intentional killing and premature death of our fellow citizens and our loved ones. No one will be safe and who can trust their doctor in this scenario? You know, it's such a moral inversion. Of course, the simplest version of the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. And here we have, and I don't know who, I don't know what doctors would say, yes, that is, that is the um, profession for me. I could be a obstetrician and help give birth to little babies. I could be a cancer specialist. I could be an emergency room surgeon. No, no, no. I want to go out there and kill people. And they use so many euphemisms. And the one now is made. Medical assistance in dying. They keep throwing away the old words once they become dirtied. I think I saw a stat the other day about a percentage of Canadians every year who die. What percentage of that is from euthanasia? What's the latest stat you've heard? That's right. Something like 4%. And now if it were noted as a cause of death, it's like the fifth leading cause of death in Canada. Well, Sir, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I have to, because I, you shed a light on a proposal from the Ontario College of Physicians and Surgeons that when, when a doctor goes and kills someone, that the death should be marked as the underlying condition rather than the euthanasia. So if someone was depressed, they died from depression. If someone had cancer, they died from cancer, when actually it was the doctor jabbing them with with the however they killed them. That's right, and that reminded me of a site I visited when I was in Europe. The former concentration camp Mauthausen has actually a registry, a death register, and there was a, a prisoner who was responsible for keeping tabs of the deaths in the camp. And next to each person who received a lethal injection, this person put a little dot to indicate that this person had not died of any sort of natural cause or even disease, but from a lethal injection. And so it's it's so sinister. And it does harken back to the worst eugenic and euthanasia policies of the 20th century. And when I asked a former leader of the euthanasia lobby, Dying with Dignity, why she no longer uses the word euthanasia, she said because of the associations. And by by that, the Nazi associations, because euthanasia was a, a Nazi tactic. You know, uh, you're so right. In the in the 30s, it was the new fad, um, sterilization. Tommy Douglas, the um, great NDP father figure, he did his uh, university thesis on um, eugenics for the subnormal and and you know, people who were dirty. It was, it really was Nazi-like. Now, to his credit, when he went to Nazi Germany and came back, he changed his mind. But it was a fashionable fad. And that is absolutely what's going on here again. What's so crazy is we should have learned the lessons from the Holocaust afterwards. There was the doctor trials, the Nazi doctor trials in Nuremberg. And, and part of the sentence has been called the Nuremberg Code. And it was an extract from 
the, the verdict that the judges issued after the trial. And it, it was, well, here's how the doctors were complicit in these horrendous crimes. Here are a list of things that must never happen again. And we're, we really are violating those. You know, there, there's this, I think it's called Godwin's Law or something, whoever invokes Hitler first loses the argument. Well, that's not really true. Because what happens if we're seeing Hitler-like laws and policies again, you have to call it out. Right, and you and I have a passion for Holocaust education and with good reason. It's not only one or the other thing. We have so much to learn about defense of human dignity from this. And I think part of it is our remoteness in Canada from some of these sites in terms of our lack of engagement with history. So you mentioned Nuremberg and the doctor's trial. Anyone can travel to Nuremberg in Germany and visit the memorial and museum that commemorates this entire doctor's trial and shows the faces of the people involved. And they were medical doctors. Yeah, the elite in the society. And we're seeing this too, the professionalization of killing. And it's, it's very devastating. But I think I just want to emphasize as well we have to get back to why is this wrong ultimately? Because people have so distorted the do no harm and they think it's harmful not to kill a person, including with, an, with, a, with a neurological condition or with a, a mental illness. You know, and they use that same uh, logic for uh, chopping up kids into trans. Oh, if we don't do this extreme gender reassignment surgery, we're killing them because we're driving them to suicide. You have the same perversion of do no harm. Oh, we must engage with it. It's, it's the same. It's on the same spectrum. We have lost a sense of proper accompaniment in the face of suffering because it's hard. And we are... And it's expensive it's for the government expensive, to... Expensive. Yeah. It's costly. But my, one of my favorite thinkers, uh, German, uh, a German Catholic during the Second World War, he was reflecting on this. He was reflecting on Nazi propaganda films. And he said, where's the deception here? And he said, the value of the dependent vulnerable person is that that person makes an appeal to our inner nobility and to our sacrificial strength. Take those people out of our lives and man becomes nothing but an egotistical predator. And that is what we are at risk of becoming with this false compassion that would rather see people dead than helped and that, that eliminates our responsibility to respond to that appeal heroically and magnanimously, which is what we're all responsible and accountable to do. Wow, listen, it's great to catch up with you. And, and you told me some of these things when we had a chat inside. Um, so what are you up to now? And how, if people are watching you, they say, holy moly, Amanda's on fire. How do we see what she's doing? Do you have a website or something? And, and what do you have coming down uh, the pipe uh, in the next few months? Sure, so you can follow me on Twitter with my name, Amanda Actman, and then also dyingtomeetyou.com. My cultural project is called Dying to Meet You because I want to put forward a positive, alternative vision to euthanasia in Canada and to say that through accompaniment, through presence, through mental health supports, and through all the kinds of resources that people ultimately deserve and that there's no reason for them not to have in our first world, ostensibly developed country, we have got to put forward a positive alternative vision because euthanasia is settling, it is compromising, it is never, um, it's, it's never ideal, it's never attractive. And so I'm passionate about telling stories and also showing how euthanasia, every culture traditionally is against euthanasia. It violates the whole basis of a culture continuing. Honor your mother and father, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So we, 
I, I would challenge everyone. If I could say one challenge to people is to see those who are doing the tough work of caregiving for a child with a disability, of caring for an aging parent, it's not easy. But as a society, we will do a lot of good when we come alongside and we value the people doing the work that is the opposite of euthanasia. So think of the people you know in your life who are doing that magnanimous, heroic, self-sacrificial work. Affirm them in it value them for it because we need that positive vision to celebrate life and to save people's lives if this is going to meet any resistance to the euthanasia we've seen rise in Canada. Well there she is Amanda Ackman, very heroic, lots to think about, lots to learn. Canada is not known for many things as number one but unfortunately we are becoming known for the fact that we euthanize a tremendous number of our people. I mean sometimes it breaks into the into the news like when the, the Veterans Affairs counsels soldiers with PTSD just to kill themselves, very disgraceful. The government pretends that was an accident, but we know it's just the tip of the iceberg. Reporting from the ARC conference in London for Rebel News, this is Ezra Levant. Rebel News is out here in London for this counterweight to the World Economic Forum. It's their inaugural conference. We're going to interview different people here. I'm here as well as our chief Australia correspondent, Avi Yamini. You can find all of our coverage at rebelnews.com. By the way, if you haven't signed up yet, when you go to rebelnews.com for the first time, it pops up a little email address. Put your email in there. That way we can send you news stories to make sure you never miss them. That's rebelnews.com.